Hey, we're in a series right now just called Real Talk, A Biblical Approach to Tough Conversations. And here's been really our heartbeat for this. Um, 2020 has had a lot of unexpected and expected moments, um, a lot of controversial moments. And our heart has been, if the Apostle Paul or Peter were to write a New Testament letter today to the church in South Florida, what would he say? And so we've been looking at biblical texts that approach these different subjects. So every week we've done the gospel and the gospel and fill in the blank. So we've done the gospel and race, the gospel and politics, the gospel and honor, the gospel and grief, uh, the gospel the gospel and spiritual warfare, the gospel and just a variety of topics. Uh, we're coming to an end of the series uh, this next week or so, and today we want to look at the gospel and sexuality. The gospel and sexuality. That's our topic today. And, and here's why. Amongst many topics happening this year in 2020, amongst many important topics, amongst many things we need to discuss. Um, obviously, when it comes to sex, sexuality, gender, those are some of the things that have constantly been discussed in our culture, in the moment we're in. And so we want to know, what does the Word of God say when it comes to sex, sexuality, gender? So our hope is to look at this from a biblical perspective. And so let me kind of preface like what I mean by sexuality. Um, sexuality ha- can be d- defined as your gender, sex, male, female, but sexuality primarily is defined as your capacity for sexual feelings, your capacity for sexual feelings. So when I say the gospel and sexuality, we're going to look at the gospel and just the different ways people express themselves sexually, different sexual orientations, uh, different ways people might identify themselves. We want to look at this. We want to have a biblical approach to the gospel and sexuality. And so our heart is to look at what does the Bible say about heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, there's pansexuality, transsexuality, asexuality, uh, there's pedestry, there's zoosexuality, there's a lot of different ways people tr- express themselves sexually. Does the Bible address these things? If it does, what does it say? Some big questions we'll look at is, does, co- does God care about who we choose to love? And if so, Why? Does God have a, pl- a plan or a purpose when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender? Are all things acceptable? Are some things off the table? What's on the table? Why are some things taboo in culture while some other things are acceptable? And we really want to look at this and go, what does the Word of God say about this? I'm going to be completely honest. Um, I really don't qu- care quite much even about what my opinion is on these topics or what sociologists' opinions are or anthropologists' opinions are or politicians' op- opinions are. Honestly, I really care. God, what do you say about this? You know, I do believe God, as we'll look at, is the inventor and creator of sex and sexuality. And so any good inventor of anything gets to just create the rules. How does this work? Um, What can we do? What's off limits? And we want to look at this from a biblical perspective. And I want to say this. God is not intimidated by the topic of sex and sexuality. Actually, the Bible speaks a lot about sex and sexuality, has a lot of things to say about it. And so the Bible doesn't shy away from it, so we don't want to shy away from it. We want to look at this and say, God, what is it you would say to us, to our culture, to our moment? Where, where have we gone off course? What do you want to correct? How do you want to lead and speak to us? Um, even for, so there's a variety of things. Let's just, just be real. There are people we love dearly who identify themselves as homosexuals, bisexuals, transsexuals, pansexuals. There's people we love and know that might identify in that way. Maybe you've struggled with uh, homosexual thoughts or feelings. Maybe you've acted upon them. Maybe your family member or friend or loved one, you know, uh, just they identify their sexual orientation as I'm a homosexual, I'm a bisexual, I'm a transsexual. Maybe they identify in that way. We want to understand these are very real people who we know, who we love. Christians who walk through this idea of who am I? What's my identity? How do I relate to people? How do I express myself sexually? What, what does God say about that? There are people we love dearly. So we want to be um, just very understanding when it comes to this. We want to be sensitive when it, comes to, when it comes to this. These are real people with real lives, with real emotions. But we also don't want to shy away from the truth of God's word. We want to say, God, what do you say? How do we surrender our will for your will? 
How do we know that our hearts can go astray? How do we bring those into alignment with God's word? Where does God want to correct us and speak into us? Yes, I would say as a church, historically, we haven't really dealt with this topic very well. Either we've uh, completely shunned people who've identified themselves in different ways sexually, made them feel ostracized, made them just feel like they're not one of us or part of us. I think the church has done a poor job in many ways. Maybe we've overly compensated and embraced it completely, never challenged. So what does the word of God say on this? How, how, do we, how do we approach this as followers of Jesus? What did Jesus do and say when he found someone caught in a sexual act or sin? How did he respond? I mean, we want to look at that. Because again, the Bible does not shy away from this, and there's a lot here uh, that we could talk about. Listen, I, let's be honest too, by the way. We're in just a weird cultural moment. You know, you could say that our generation is like a byproduct of like the sexual revolution from the 60s. You know, if you think about like what really changed in the 50s, or the 60s, or the 70s, there was like this explosion of the sexual revolution. It's just kind of like you do you in their way, you know, express yourself. There is no right or wrong. Kind of gender lines and sexual lines got blurred a little bit. And you could say we are the byproduct of that generation. This secular experiment of just kind of do whatever pleases you we are that byproduct. And I say we live in a generation when it comes to sex and sexuality, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of addiction, there's a lot of human trafficking, there's a lot of terrible and painful things people have walked through. Maybe you've done some things you're ashamed of, maybe people have done some things to you you're ashamed of you don't want to talk about. We've been really shaped and formed by what's kind of this explosion that's taken place culturally not too long ago. And we're kind of that second and third generation after, we're seeing the fruits of that generation that really gave themselves over to just kind of expressing yourself however you want sexually. And I, I, I want to submit this idea that the secular uh, experiment of sexuality has failed us, and that's gotten to a lot of pain and heartbreak, and it's gone to a lot of sort of different addictions and just pain in relationships, a lot of divorce, a lot of abortions, a lot of, a lot of things that have come from this um, experiment. And so what does God have to say? How do we redeem the moment? How do we say God's will and God's plan is better than my will and my plan? So here's the thing. I hope in some ways, like we want this to be a little uncomfortable. Listen, God's word challenges all of us. I have to submit my will, my thinking, my ideas for God. What do you say? We have to do a good job of interpreting the text correctly. Some people interpret it this way, some this way. So there's a lot of hard work when it comes to this topic, but I'm excited. I think it's worth it. And I think it's something we should um, eagerly approach because whether it's sex or sexuality or gender, God has more than an opinion on it. And, and God wants to speak into it and direct our lives in that. And I think if we could submit ourselves to his way, I think we'd see a lot less pain when it comes to the topic of sexuality than we're currently seeing. Amen? So, amen. So let's, um, let's read our text. I want to pray expectantly and, and trust the Lord to guide us on this topic of sex, sexuality, uh, and, and the rest. So here we are. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's read verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but unholiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. I want to break this down. 
And again, there's a lot to do today. There's a lot to talk about. I don't think in one service we're going to answer every question, but I hope we can go, here's God's design for this. Now, a couple things I forgot to mention. I want to recommend two resources. During this series, because the topics have been so rich and so deep, um, I want to kind of recommend some books for you that I've been reading or have read, and I just want you guys to just know what those are. There's one book I want to recommend to you guys. It's called Loveology uh, by John Mark Comer. He goes over basically sex, gender roles, uh, sexuality, all of that. Uh, another book I want to recommend is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Um, this guy has a, an incredible story and good theology. And I just want to recommend those two books. If you're like, I want to know more, this is kind of, you know, scratch the surface for me, uh, I would recommend those books. Loveology and uh, the Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Sound good? Let's come my recommendation. Sweet. All right, let's pray and just invite the Lord to speak into this. <clears throat> Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your word that is a light and a lamp unto our feet and that it directs our steps. And Father, I just ask that you'd be present, that you'd be here, that though a lot of us have um, maybe seen hurt come from the church in a way that was not warranted, that was not okay, or maybe we've seen just things that personally we walk through that have really um, just been painful when it comes to sex or sexuality. Jesus, I just ask for healing. I ask that you would move. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do what you want to do in this place, that you'd correct us, restore us, heal us, that Jesus, um, how this is not just to one group or segment of people, but Lord, how we see just this, this, this idea, this misunderstanding or abuse of the way you created sex and sexuality. Lord, I ask that you'd make it really clear to us um, how to walk in your ways and trust you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You know, before we get into topic, I think we could all agree that we live in a world and in a time where we are just obsessed with sex. Like, sex is everywhere. We know that. We get that. We're obsessed with it. You know, I was driving back from Orlando, and I can't, you know, billboard after billboard about these gentlemen's, you know, clubs. And I'm like, I don't know if they're really gentlemen go there. Uh, but you just see, like, billboard after billboard, or you're driving behind a taxi cab. Like, even here in South Florida, whenever I'm behind a taxi, I need to, like, close my eyes, like, Lord, thank you for my wife. Bless her. Be with her. Because even taxi, this is very vulgar. It's just very in your face wherever you go. I mean, if you have social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, you know, you know how easy it is for someone to like message you or to pop up and follow you. And you're like, who's this new follower? Oh, it's Satan in a red dress. Like, you know, that's so easy. It just creeps in in so many different forms. I mean, on our computers, you're like, pop a bad. It's like, want to have fun? I'm like, no, I do not want to have fun. I'm good. You know, even having a church like email, you know, where people, I don't know how this works, like spam works, but we have like a baptism form or whatever. And it's like, do you want to be baptized? Tell us about when you put your faith in Jesus. And then like, I'm like, oh, someone signed up for the baptism. I'll click on it. And I'm like, that's not a real person. And that's not good. The name is terrible. You know, it's just everywhere. My point is we have to agree that we live in a world that is obsessed with sex and sexuality and the freedoms we have to express it. And it's, it's this point of idolization. It's becoming the main God probably in our world, in our culture, the main idol of our day. And we have to see what it's doing to us. We have to understand how it's playing into our lives in reality. Um, I want to just read a few of these stats to you. You can get these off of Covenant Eyes or different uh, websites that try to deal with pornography or sex addictions. Uh, listen to this. 25% of all search engine requests are pornography related. The average age of a first internet exposure to pornography is 11 years old. And this is a couple years ago, it's probably younger. And that's internet exposure. 70% of 18 to 24 year old men visit pornographic sites in a typical month. 11,000 adult movies are produced each year. For every 10 men in the church, five are struggling with pornography. And not only with men, but one out of three women are users of pornography. We got to see that this has become the new norm. 
We got to even see that this is even a, a, a non-Christian versus Christian thing. This is an every human being thing. I, I would even say that more and more non-believers, non-Christians, non-followers of the way of Jesus are seeing the pain of pornography. They're acknowledging what it does to marriages and people and lives. I mean, this isn't like, oh, Christians, this thing. I mean, even, even though majority of people, surveys are done, like the majority of people, 80, 90% think pornography is okay to use. But at the same time, they're seeing the, the byproduct of this. It goes on to say, um, child pornography generates $3 billion annually. About 40 million abortions happened this year, this year in 2020. There's about 125,000 babies a, a day on average that will be aborted in a single day. The, the reason why I bring these up is um, people, people like to say, it's just sex. Like, it's just sex. Just pornography. It's not, it's not hurting anyone. Uh, and, and no one plans on getting addicted to pornography. No one plans on getting to pornography that's so vile or so gross that leads them to child pornography. No one plans on getting so addicted to pornography that they end up losing attraction for their spouse and fantasizing over a false reality. You know, no one plans on becoming a pedophile. But we see that these are the gateway things to those things. I mean, there are people we know, people I love, had a relationship with, got caught up in that world, got caught up in the world of pornography to the child pornography and been arrested in prison. There's people who he didn't plan that. There's people we know who, who it's led to a lot of pain and heartbreak. And, and we got to understand it's not just sex. We got to understand that it, there's so much more attached to it, that sex is sacred and sex is holy, and we want to look at that. But we got to see how this plays out in our culture. A couple more <laughs> stats on this. Human, human trafficking generates about $150 billion a year globally. Approximately 300,000 children are at risk of being prostituted in the United States. You see, this hunger and obsession with sex has led to a lot of pain. It's led to a lot of heartbreak. It's led to a lot of addiction. It's led to a lot of divorce, abortion. It's led to a lot of just different things that we see play out in our culture. This obsession with sex and sexuality and, come on, don't judge me. I'm free to do whatever I want. It's not hurting anyone. It's led to a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of heartbreak. And we have to be honest with that. And listen, let's, let's even realize this. We're not the first generation to tr struggle with different forms of sexuality. We're not the first generation to question uh, what is normal, what's unnormal, what's okay, what's not okay. We're not the first people to ask these questions. I mean, this has been the God of, of, of the ages. I mean, one of the first stories in the Bible is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where two angels are going to Lot to deliver him this message, and the men of the city see these two angels, these beautiful angels. They go, bring out those, bring out those men that we may have sex with them. I mean, that was the cry. They're just, it just took over. Like, we want to sleep with those men because they're just beautiful. And they're like banging on Lot's door, and Lot's like, oh, I'll give you my daughters, not with these men. They're my guests. And you see just from the very beginning that just this hunger for sex, this obsession with sex is from the very beginning. I mean, even a couple thousand years ago, there's a city called Pompeii in Italy, like a beautiful city on the coast of Italy. It was a really like wealthy, prestigious city, cultured city. If you, if you know about Pompeii, there's a mountain nearby called Mount Vesuvius. And about 2,000 years ago, that mountain went off. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the, the, it was so fast so unexpected that people literally like froze in like from the ash of the volcano. I don't know if you've ever seen like the bodies of people and there's, there's some like, so my wife and I went to Pompeii uh, several years ago and there's people you see in the weirdest positions, like as one guy on the toilet, there's people doing not, not so good things and they literally got like frozen in time from this volcanic ash and you're walking around the city of Pompeii, I mean ancient ruins everywhere, like, almost like the full city and on the walls are just pornographic images everywhere. We just walk into like a, someone's house and there'd just be an orgy uh, on the wall in painting still that was up there. Men having sex with each other on the wall. I mean, my, my point of bringing this up is sex is the God of all ages. I mean, it's been the God that mankind has worshiped for a long time. 
Again, we're not the first generation to say, is there other forms or different ways to express yourself? And, and what is okay? What's not okay? Here's the thing. We really do have to see this. Um, this obsession with sex, whether through TV, music, Netflix, I mean, it generates a lot of interest. It generates a lot of money. I mean, it is true, sex does sell. There's something about that that people know if we just put a little sex on TV or just kind of introduce it slowly, it'll lead them more down this wormhole, and they know that it's going to sell, it's going to get viewers, it's going to get clicks. And we got to understand that. we got to see how it's just, it's a gateway drug in many ways. And, and I want to say this because here's the thing. I do want to look at what does the Bible say about sexuality. We're going to do that in a second. But let me just kind of submit to you this idea. Whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're not, I think there are some questions everyone should ask themselves when it comes to sexuality. So if someone's like, Josiah, there's no way you can tell me this is wrong from outside of the Bible. I would say there's a few questions we should ask everyone, whether or not you're a Christian, uh, that it, you don't necessarily need the Bible, I think, to introduce this idea that is truly everything okay? So here's a few questions. Why don't you take notes, write this down, or maybe you'll use this. I've used this in conversations just, you know, commonly. So here's the first question. Uh, one question I like to ask is, where do you draw the line, right? And this, maybe you've heard this, but think about this for a second. Where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? Who draws the line? Who determines what is sexually acceptable and what is sexually unacceptable? Is everything allowed or just the things that are right now culturally okay? Is there certain things that are taboo that will be accepted one day? I mean, how do we draw the line? Who draws that line? Where do you draw the line? So, for example, you, if you ask the majority of people, is pornography okay? Many people will be like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with pornography. And if you say, well, is child pornography okay? Well, no, not that. Well, why? Well, because it's against the law. What if it wasn't against the law? Uh, it's still wrong. Well, why? Because they're children. What if it becomes acceptable in a cultural way, in a big way? Why is it wrong? I mean, so if a child can choose their gender at eight years old, according to many of our leaders, can they choose eight years old to be in a pornography video or be in porn? Why not? They can choose their gender, but not to express or reveal that. My thing is we have to ask questions. Where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? But there has to be ways we look at this. You know, again, you talk to people. Um, there's something called the North American Man-Boy Love Association, N-A-M-B-L-A. The North American Man-Boy Love Association is what you think it is. It's basically a group of men who say, listen, we love... Uh, boys who are not teenagers, who haven't gone through puberty, we're in love with them. We love the way their bodies are. Um, we were made this way. We were born this way. We can't change who we are. We can't choose who we love. What's really interesting is uh, it's basically a pedophilia group that will argue very similar arguments to, to other expressions of sexuality. I was born this way. I can't choose who I love. They're consenting. They're 11. They can make this choice. They can choose their gender, even younger. They're 11 years old. They can choose to love me. And they're making the similar arguments that other sexual communities are arguing. So we say, well, is pedophilia okay? Well, no, pedophilia is not okay. Well, why? Well, because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it is. Well, what happens when the majority looks at it? My point is we have to ask ourselves these questions. Where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? Who draws the line? Well, just because something's legalized, does that make it morally acceptable? We have to ask these questions. You know, Ravi Zacharias, one of the greatest thinkers or apologists for the Christian faith, uh, put it this way. A couple of thoughts. Like, you can write this down. I think it's as helpful. He'd say, number one, if there is evil, there must be good. Okay? We can acknowledge that. If someone says, you know, there's evil in this world, then you're saying, okay, there must be good. Then he'd say, if there is good and evil, there must be a moral law or a ruler to judge between good and evil. Stay with me. If there is a moral law... Me. No. Let me go, I disagree with what's moral. You disagree with what's moral. Is there objective morality? And as Ravi's saying, the only way you can get to that conclusion is if there's a God. Let me put it to you in this way. It's such a Ravi way. It's such like a ninja with words, and I, I can't do it. I wish I could. But here's what he says. Uh, he says, listen to this quote when someone asks him about evil and God. He says, when you say there's too much evil in this world, you assume there's good. 
when you assume there's good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no, no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. Uh, what is your question? I, I love this. So you're like, I need to read that 15 times. I know I did too. But I love how he just breaks this down for them. They're like, I can't never believe in God because there's too much evil in the world. And he goes, well, if you believe there's evil, you believe there's good, you believe there's moral law. You're, you're, the very thing by acknowledging evil for you is proving the fact that you're, there's a God. That there's someone in which to judge this or speak this. Here's the thing I want to get at again. Where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? Who draws the line? It's a question we should ask the world that just kind of accepts everything and anything. Well, of course this is okay. Of course people can do this. It's their choice, it's their body, it's their expression, it's their freedom. And the question is, where do you draw the line? Because right now, and it's not far-fetched, it's not. Right now we're five, 10 years, I believe, away from just the pedophilia argument becoming a part of just mainstream argument when it comes to sexuality. I don't think we're that far away. I think that they're using very similar arguments. Again, I was born this way. I can't choose who I love. They're consenting. I think they're using very similar arguments and we need to be ready. My point with that question of where do you draw the line? How do you draw the line? Who draws the line? Is it politicians? Is it us? Is it majority culture? Has majority been off before? These are questions we should be asking. Would you agree? You with me a little bit on that one? Okay, maybe not. We'll keep going though. Uh, number two, another question I, I think is worth asking. It's just worth asking in conversation. And it's, there's different ways you can put it, but here's the question. Even if sexuality is a predisposition, does it make it okay to act on it? I think this is a question worth asking. asking. So if someone says, listen, I was born this way, and this is my predisposition. You know, for me as a follower of Jesus, according to the scriptures, here's what I would argue. I would argue according to Ephesians 2, by nature we're children of wrath. By nature we're sinners. That's just it. Sin is in my DNA. I don't know if it's a specific sin that's in my DNA. I think I'm, it's possible for me to commit any kind of sin. By nature, I'm a sinner. By nature, I'm a, ch a child of wrath. But let's just say for argument's sake that they say, well, this is my predisposition. I was born this way. This is my proclivity. I was born attracted to the same sex. I was born attracted to a minor. I was born attracted to an animal, but people use the same argument. I was born attracted to, I'm saying, even if that's your predisposition, we have to ask, is it okay to act upon it? So just because that might be your proclivity, another way to say it is just because something comes naturally, it doesn't mean it's morally okay to act upon it. Just because something might come naturally, it doesn't mean it's morally okay to act upon it. So for example, um, you know, married men, any man can attest to this fact and say, listen, um, I'm married. I'm married to a woman. I'm married to my wife, Kimber, who's beautiful. I love her so much. As men, we struggle with lust or thoughts like that, something in that category. Here, here's the thing. Um, just because you could say that's my natural proclivity. I'm born this way to be attracted to many more than just one person, to be attracted to everyone. That's who I am. So I must need to give into that. Could you imagine a husband coming home to his wife and say, hey, babe, I love you so much, but you know, I really need to be who I am and express who I am. And you know what? Um, I have one wife, but I want a couple more. So you're gonna have a couple more joining the family. And she's like, well, I need to express who I am and I'm gonna murder you. Like my, my point is, if we were to truly all act upon, maybe you could say, well, this comes naturally to me. I'm, attracted, I'm naturally attracted to more than one woman, so obviously that means I need to act upon that attraction. I'm naturally attracted to this kind of person or thing, so obviously I must need to act upon that proclivity. The question I think that's worth asking is, even if that's your predisposition, does that make it okay to act upon it? Even if that's something that comes natural. There's a lot of things that come natural to people that are pretty wicked and evil. No second thought. This is, they would say, from this, since I was a little kid, I thought about doing this to people. Does that make it okay to act upon it, even if that's your predisposition? Is that okay? It's something we, we must ask. It's something we must consider. I'm going to keep... Actually, before I move on, let me say this, by the way. By no, by no means does that minimize, or does the Bible minimize those desires? 
Listen, people have very real desires for the same sex, for many sexes, to express themselves in different ways. People have very real desires. The Bible does not try to minimize people's desires or temptations. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I can't choose what I'm tempted by in many ways. The Bible makes it clear, like, temptation can come in many forms. I don't choose, I want this thing to tempt me today. Something random might tempt me, but I can choose how I react to that temptation. The Bible communicates that people really don't choose what's being thrown at them, what's, what's tempting them. But I do choose how, to resp- how I respond or how you might respond to that temptation, if that makes sense. We, we got to understand this. I'm, I don't want to dismiss anyone's natural feelings. I don't want to make it laughable. I'm sorry if that's not the fact. I want, I want it to be something where you go, well, I was born this way. I felt this way my whole life. This is what my friends are this way. My siblings are this way. They, they claim this. And I would say, I'm not denying that. I won't, I won't deny that. By nature, according to scriptures, we are children of wrath. Um, but just because it comes naturally doesn't mean it's okay to act upon it. Because a lot of things come naturally to people that aren't, aren't so holy, that aren't so good. Should we just act upon it because it comes naturally? I, I don't think so. And I think that's a question just worth asking. Just stay with me. This, we're just kind of doing this from a philosophical standpoint. Number three, here's the last question I would ask. I've used this before, but here's another question to ask people. Just because you have, or I said it wrong, uh, should God always agree with our personal beliefs? A question I do like to ask people is this. Listen, um, if they go, God obviously affirms this lifestyle, whatever that is. My question is, should God always agree with our personal beliefs? If there is a God, obviously, which I believe there is, will this God always agree with me? Will this God always agree with what's popular in culture? Will this God always agree with what's happening in the West and in the East, in a secular worldview or maybe more of a traditional worldview? My question is, is God going to always agree with what's popular in culture? I'm so thankful God doesn't. Culture's changed a lot over the years. Could you imagine if God always agreed with what was popular in culture at that time point, at that period? Like, sooner or later, you know, God and us are going to disagree. Me and God are going to disagree on a few things. You know, if someone, if I, when I've used this question before, should God always agree with our personal beliefs? I've had people be like, well, he obviously agrees with your beliefs. I'm like, no, I've had to submit a lot of my beliefs or passions or things that I desire over to his will. D- don't assume that, you know, I'm, God only at challenges one group of people or one person. I've had to go, God, I wouldn't have done it this way. What you said, how you did it, I would have done it. But you know what? I'm going to submit my will, my thoughts over to you. I've had to submit my way of thinking to what God's word says as well. It's not just one person or one people group. Everyone, sooner or later, everyone has to submit their way of thinking over to God's way of thinking. Because if me and God disagree, um, I don't think he's on the wrong end of the stick, right? Are you guys with me? So should God always agree with our personal beliefs? No, of course not. I'm very thankful. God's going to disagree with a lot of people over a lot of time in history, and so we have to understand that. So this leads us to this question. So what does the Bible say about sexuality? What does the Bible say about how God made it, how God designed it? Here's the first main point, and it's not that profound, but it's incredibly profound. First point, listen, sexuality is designed. Sexuality is designed. There's a design to it. There's a specific design behind sexuality. God made it. God made it with a purpose, and God made it with a reason. Sexuality is designed. That is a beautiful thing. There's order to sexuality. It's in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. It says, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. He created them. God made mankind, the verse, in his own image. He made them male and female. That man and women both reflect the nature and character of God. That man and women both make up the image of God. It's not one or the other. This is a beautiful thing. Men should celebrate women a lot more. Women should celebrate men We have a lot of gender wars or battles or this group is better at this, this group is better at that, they're worse, they're better. Can I tell you, we look at men and women, like the church go, man, um, the Bible was so far ahead of its time. The Bible was so far ahead of its time. 
Like, think about this. People like to claim, man, the Bible, it's so old. It's, like, it's so patriarchal. I mean, it oppresses women. I would say the very first chapter talks about equality between man and woman. The very first chapter of the Bible introduces that male and female are made in the image of God. There is no greater or no lesser, but yet there's difference in, in uniqueness. And so I love that the Bible acknowledges this equality, yet this uniqueness, this equality, yet this difference. And we got to see that. That is a beautiful thing scripturally in the first few pages of our book is that God acknowledges that there is a, there's a, a beautiful um, thing we have in common that we're both made in God's image. So there's equality, but we are very different. Because I, I just think that I would love to see the church men. We got to celebrate women more. I'm thankful for womanhood. I'm thankful for the, the, the expression of the body of Christ through women. And women, I'm thankful for men. We've got to be thankful for men, for the expression of the body of Christ. They add to the family and they add to the church. There's this beautiful celebration that we should have in one of another. They were both made in God's image. This is such a beautiful theology that's really only to Christianity. And I love this. You know, Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, God's design for marriage is that the two become one that male and female do become one. Back to that idea of how we're made in God's image. You become one flesh. And this, this one flesh is this holistic union. That, listen, when you get married and you know this, you're sharing everything, right? You're sharing your bank account. You're sharing your living space, your bed. You know, I remember the first time my wife used my toothbrush. I was like, you'd never, please never do that again. Like, that's one thing. And she's like, we're married now. And she brushed her teeth. And I just tried not to vomit. Um, but I remember like there's this oneness happening. Like there's this oneness thing happening in every way. And it is such a beautiful thing. And God says, male and female. It's funny, we're a culture that celebrates diversity. And in marriage, that would be male and female. But yet we, we want homogeneous ends. It's just very interesting. We should celebrate this diversity in marriage. We should celebrate this male and female. You know, there's a thought behind this that our bodies do tell a story. There is a teleological purpose and a theological purpose behind our bodies, meaning teleological is the idea of just there's purpose and meaning behind our bodies, the way God wired us, male and female. The way the Bible talks about this really is interesting. The Bible talks about heaven as male and earth as female. The Bible uses this language that the earth, com- that heaven comes down to earth, that the heaven, in a sense, pregnates earth, that, he- that heaven should come into earth and become one, like rule and reign. And I think there's a side of it where it's like, wow, there's this language you see of male and female and this one flesh. I mean, Jesus said this in Matthew 19. He goes, have you not read from the beginning that he who made them made them male and female? When Jesus tries to go back and talk about marriage, he says, this is what marriage is about. It's male and female. The two become one. They leave their father and mother. They create one new flesh. This is an incredible, beautiful concept. And I don't know why we try to blur those lines or say there's, you know, gender is just a social construct when this is a beautiful image bearer of God issue. And we should celebrate the opposite sex and say, thank you, Lord, that you've made us equal yet unique. Thank you, Lord, for that. Our God is so creative that way. He says, you're equal, yet you're very unique. And you, you offer something to the body of Christ. You offer something to your family, to your spouse, to your children that only a woman or man could offer. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And I think we're seeing the byproduct of a lot of this pain and suffering and addiction and all this money being spent on sexuality and different expressions of it. I think we're seeing all the pain that has come with that. Here's how I'll put it this way. The design we see from the very beginning is that sexuality is to be expressed with one person in marriage, in a covenant of the opposite sex for life. Just read that. This is what we see. The design we see from the very beginning. It's male and female in a covenant of marriage just for life. This is where we see sex take place. This is how God says, this is how sex, this is where it should take place, how it should take place in the covenant of marriage for life. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. 
And, and again, I, I understand this. A lot of us have passed. A lot of us have done things. Things we're shameful of. People have done things to us. And it's not to say like, well, you can never attain that goal. It's to say, no, I'm so thankful that God makes all things new. God makes all things new. God makes all things new. God can take the shame of our past, our decisions, things that we've done or things that others have done to us, and he can make that new. And I think this is one of those things where you say, this is, this is the design from the very beginning. Male and female, in a covenant, in marriage, for life. So sex is to be expressed in that for life. And this is an unbelievable thing. And we as, as a church want to say, Lord, it's not so much what are you, like we're against all these things. It's, we're just so for the way God designed it. It's like, are you against this, this, and this, and this? It's like, I'm just so for marriage the way God intended. I'm so for the way he made it. Because I think that's when you can see true healing and expression that God designed. Now, that leads to my next point, which is this, number two. Uh, sexuality and sex is a very good thing, all right? According to the Bible, sex and sexuality is a very good thing. After God made them male and female in his image, it says in Genesis 1.31, then God saw everything that he had done, and indeed, it was very good. It was very good. Sexuality is good. Sex is very good. You can say amen. I know husbands are like, amen. No, you can say that. Sorry. Sex and sexuality is a very good thing. Uh, Hebrews 13.4 says this, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. He's comparing and contrasting this idea. Hey, marriage, honorable. The bed, undefiled. The bed meaning like, go for it. Like off limits? No, go, go for it. You know, there's a whole book of the Bible called Song of Solomon that is erotic poetry. It's just these crazy expressions of just like, of love. It's very, you know, picturesque kind of a book, you know, and it's basically this man to his betrothed and just say, like, they're expressing this deep, intimate, physical, physical, and just soulish attraction to each other. And it's an, inc- the Bible's not, again, it's not shy about these things. Like, we've got to understand this. My wife and I were talking about this just a lot, just in life and in ministry, but for, for so long, the church, I think, has, like, created, like, fear around sex. Even when we were younger, it's just like, oh, sex, mm, that's bad. And, like, sex was bad. It was t- sex was, like, taught to be afraid of or, like, bad. When the Bible says sex is good and it's beautiful. You know, it's funny, like, I remember, like, you know, youth group days, like, and then here's this venereal disease. Like, they click, like, oh, my gosh, like, like why did we do that? Like, Christians, we, we fail the mark when we, we paint sex to be some bad thing. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, this is a beautiful thing God invented, God created. Satan did not come up with sex. God invented this. This is beautiful. This is good. And the reason why I think this is so important is sex is kind of like fire, right? Meaning, when fire is in a fireplace, that is good. It's great. It's warm. You can gather around like, oh, this keeps all of us warm. Sex is like fire. In a fireplace, is good. But fire in a forest, not so good, right? And I think the idea is like, we need, there, there's a way God designed it. There's a way God made it. And when it's done his way, his, it's so beautiful. It's so good. I, I know this is a silly analogy, but like, think about this. If someone invented, you know, Disney invented Disneyland or Disney World or, I don't know, the Parker brothers who invented Monopoly. Those are terrible people because it's almost ended every family I've ever known. But those people who invent these things, they can invent the rules they can invent, hey, here's the rules. Do not do this. If you do this, you cheat it and you're out of the game. They can invent the rules. They say, if you play this way, here's how you have the most fun. Here's how it's most competitive. Here's how you can work together. And they invent the rules to those things. God invented sex and he created the rules to it and we do it his way. It's beautiful. In marriage, of the opposite sex for life, beautiful. Marriage can be one of the most glorious things or marriage and sex can be one of the most glorious things on this earth that God has created and given as a gift to us. And it can also be one of the most destructive things on this earth. We have to understand the way just we, we harness this gift of sex and sexuality. It can be one of the greatest things God brings a unity and intimacy and whole life and oneness, or the enemy can use that same beautiful gift from God, and it can be very destructive to families, to children, to just anyone. It's just it's a powerful tool that God has made for us. It's a powerful gift that God has given us. 
And so sexuality, listen, is a very good thing. We need to change the narrative in the church and say, God invented it. God made it. It is beautiful. It is good. It is holy. It brings him honor and glory. The marriage bed is undefiled. And then here's a third point, though, when it comes to sexuality. Uh, listen, sexuality, and this might sound strange, but sexuality is symbolic. Or sexuality is a picture. And here's what I mean by that. When it comes to, to sexuality or looking for intimacy with someone else, to have like this closeness, this oneness, it's symbolic in a picture of what we all long for. You see, what we all long for is to be able to love someone and be loved someone fully. To be naked and unashamed, kind of like in the Garden of Eden again. All of us are longing for, will this person see me for who I am? All the good things, the bad things, whether clothed or unclothed, will they see me in every way and say, and I love you. And I'll love you fully. And I'll love you intimately. And see, the whole idea of sex and sexuality is a picture of this deep longing all of us have to be loved and to show love. And that is fulfilled in marriage, yes, but not fully. It's really a picture of something greater between us and Jesus, us and him, us and God. That, that Ephesians 5 even talks about this great mystery around marriage that it really is speaking more of us and God. That you don't even have to be married to experience this because you can have this intimacy of fully being known and fully being loved uh, with your creator. That it's not that, more, that married people are more complete and single people are incomplete. No, because it's a picture of something else that's pointing to this oneness and this uniqueness that you can have, this intimacy you can have with Jesus. Another way of putting it is this. Sex is pointing to a greater reality, to the story we all long for. Sex is pointing to the story we all long for. Of can I just experience intimacy and love? Someone's not trying to use me or use my body or use what I can do for them in the moment, but they truly love me in marriage, in a covenant, for life. It's not this one-time thing, or what can I get out of it? And it's pointing to that reality we all long for that's fulfilled in Jesus. That he'll love you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do you part, you're with him. But the idea that you'll have that meaning and that oneness, that intimacy with your creator that you could never truly have in this world. That God has created an eternal void in the heart of man, Ecclesiastes 3.11. That God has placed eternity into the hearts of men, and only an eternal God can fill that eternal void. And it just points to a greater story. It's when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, but he meets her by the well. And he's like speaking prophetically to her. And she goes, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Because what did Jesus say to her? Jesus says, she's like, I'm gonna go and tell my husband who I'm, who I'm dealing with, who I'm meeting with. And he goes, you're not gonna tell your husband. You've had five husbands, but the one you're currently living with is not your husband. And she's like, oh, how'd, you, how'd you know that? And then Jesus says this to her. He says this in John chapter 4, a beautiful reflection of this point. He says, I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. Here's what was happening in that moment. This woman was trying to find her meaning and value and purpose in sex, in marriages. She had five husbands. She's lived with the guy she's with now. Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to give you something that will never, you'll never thirst again. You're obviously thirsty and you're trying to fulfill that void through marriage or sex or whatever, and it's not going to fulfill that void. I'm going to give you water, but you'll never thirst again. You see, the whole idea of sexuality, marriage, sex, all of it is pointing to a greater story of intimacy with Jesus. All of it's pointing to a greater story of this is what we were made for. We were made by him and for him. And even, even for you, those of you who are single and you get married, your, your spouse can never fulfill you. They'll never fulfill you the way Jesus can fulfill you. They're, they're beautiful God-given gifts that we should celebrate and honor and love, but they'll never meet those deepest longings and needs of your heart that only Jesus Christ can fulfill. You see, and here's, here's the point when it comes to this. Um, you can never have intimacy in marriage or with God until you give up your independence. So we say that this. When you get married, you'll realize, I will never have intimacy with you until I'm willing to let go of my independence. So when I got married, there were some things I had to let go of. 
There's a lot of like guy nights I let go of. A lot of like for me back in California, going to 24-hour fitness, playing basketball. A lot of those things I had to let go of in order for me to experience greater intimacy. I had to say goodbye to a lot, and I'm not saying everything, but it's very true. You have to say goodbye to a lot of your independence to form one new world, one new life, one new culture, one new home. And you're saying, you know what? If I want intimacy with this person, there's a lot of things I got to give up. There have been different times, and I'll just be honest. It wasn't even, you know, I'll be honest. There's been different times in my life with, with my wife, with Kimber, where we feel like we're the pace of life, the business of life was getting so chaotic. I said, listen, um, the ministry can never become uh, my harlot. It can never become the person I cheat on you with. I, I'm willing to love Jesus and serve Jesus and to love you and serve you. And if I have to give it to ministry for doing that, I'll do that. And, and, you know, there's those moments in your marriage, in your life, you need to express that to say, I love you so much. If this is the taking that place, I'm, gonna willing, I'm willing to give it up. Think about this, church. When it comes to Jesus, you have to do that. When it comes to sexuality, you have to do that. Here's what I mean. If you want great intimacy with Jesus, there will be some things you have to let go. Some strongholds you have to let go. Some personal desires, some personal longings. But this is the way I was born. There's some things you're going to have to let go if you're going to want intimacy with Jesus. Just the same way it works in marriage. If I want intimacy with my wife, I have to let go of a lot of my pride and selfishness. If I want intimacy with Jesus, I got to let go of a lot of my pride and selfishness. All of it. And this is how God has designed it. It's symbolic. It's a picture. And here's the, here's the last thing. You guys with me? Last thing. Sexuality is cautioned. It's cautioned. It's warned. Because it's powerful, man. Sex is powerful. Sexuality is powerful. And so it's therefore it's warned. How do we use it? How do we express it? How do we live it out? The Bible warns about it. Because it's a very powerful gift God has given us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, listen, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, I get that this is a big list, and it's not just a sexual list. Um, it's also related to a lot of like greed and things like that. But here's what I want to point out. He does talk about certain sexual sins. This word for fornicators is pornea. This word for homosexuals and sodomites is these two words I can't really pronounce. It's malakos and uh, arsen oite. Um, but here's the idea. There's these three words that are actually used quite a bit in the scriptures to refer either to fornica fornication, which I'll explain what that is, or essentially to uh, homosexuality, men sleep with men, women sleeping with women. Um, it's really these words that are used in those terms. Let me explain something really quick. Um, it's important to know the interpretation, the author's intent, absolutely. There are many people who will argue that Paul was not writing about or speaking about men sleeping with other men in the covenant of marriage. He's more talking about sleeping with multiple men outside of marriage. But if you have sex with another man, as a man, inside the covenant of marriage, that is okay. Let me just say this. I believe that is a false interpretation of the text. I think that's a bad interpretation of the text. So they'll argue that if, if you're a homosexual and you're in marriage and you're, it's a monogamy, God approves, it, approves of it. I would say these words here disprove that. Let me just quote to you one thing. Um, a guy named Thomas Hubbard, he's not a Christian, he's not a believer. He wrote a, a book called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, and he wrote this book not as a Christian, but says, no, there was um, homosexual monogamous relationships in the covenant of marriage, and they use those same Greek words that are used here. So those who argue and say, no, Paul's not talking about within the covenants of marriage. He's just talking about those who are expressing outside of marriage in a homosexual way. That's what he's condemning. I would argue with that. The reason why I think this is so important is because Paul says it this way. He says, he who practices these things will not receive the kingdom of God. My thing is, I cannot downplay this. 
Like, I, can't, I can't try to ninja my way out of this. Like, that doesn't mean that. I'd say Paul's very clear. Let me, let me even say this. The word pornea, um, it comes, obviously, we get the word pornography from that word. Pornea is just a very unique word. It's used in so many different ways in the Bible and in literature when it comes to sexual sin or expression. Pornea can mean a plethora of things. Pornea, obviously, can mean pornographic images. It can mean adultery. It can mean sex outside of marriage. Uh, it can mean that with same sex or opposite sex. It, it's just used in a lot of different forms. Uh, pornea essentially seems to mean for most people, it just means to be sexually stimulated outside of marriage. So let me just say this. The Bible is basically calling out heterosexual sin and homosexual sin and bisexual sin. Please, please listen to this. He's saying if you're being sexually stimulated outside of marriage, that's pornea. That's one of those things where all of us need to hear that. That's one of those things that we got to take to heart. The, the Bible's an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> it's going to offend this group of people and this group of people. Like, you got to see that it says, no, no, listen, if you're having, whether, it's not just sex outside of marriage. I get that question, like, how far is too far, right? Like, can, I, can I go this far? I go, I don't know. Are you getting sexually stimulated outside of marriage? Yeah. Okay, you've gone too far according to scriptures. Like, whoa, whoa, Josiah, you know what that means? Like, yeah, it means be sexually stimulated with your spouse in the covenant of marriage. My, my thing is God created this to be a beautiful God-given thing and, and use it the way he designed I'm not saying that you won't, you won't fall. You're not saying you won't lust. You won't fail. But there needs to be repentance, ownership, change of heart. God, I confess this to you. The, the thing with this that we have to see as a church, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Thessalonians 4, he goes, you need to know how to possess your own body. You need to know that God the Spirit lives in you and dwells in you. And it's not a, a good enough excuse to be like, well, everyone watches it. Well, every couple outside of marriage is still doing it. I mean, this is so old school. To sign. Here's the thing. I think this is why we're seeing the rate of divorce just skyrocket. I think this is why we're just seeing so much more money being poured into sexual counseling. I think this is why we're seeing abortions go up. I think we're seeing just the byproduct of just all the sexual pain that's coming along with doing sex and sexuality outside of God's design. This is just one of those things where I say, the Bible will say fornicators, pornea, uh, sodomites, homosexuals, and it's, it's trying to be really clear, it doesn't matter. Sexual sin out the side of man and woman in the covenant of marriage for life is sexual sin. And this is one of those things where, again, I'm thankful the Bible, I, I believe, is clear, speaks into it, and is pointing us to a greater vision that sex is sacred, sex is holy, sex is from God, sex is good. Use it, apply it in the covenant of marriage, the way God designed, and then we'll see just healing in that and from that. I, I think we have to get this deep into our hearts. So I want to ask this question, because you go, decide, but where do I go from here? Like, I'm still, like, I'm young you know, like, like you said, it's every, it's sex is everywhere. It's on every TV show. It's on the freeways, in the taxi cab. Like, I can't even get away from it if I wanted to. Like, it's just everywhere to say, like, how do I deal with this? You know, Paul actually asked uh, and said a very similar thing. Paul in Romans 7 is like, man, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, that's what I'm doing. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, Paul recognized, man, it's hard. It's difficult to say, you know what? I, it's difficult to say, God, I know your way is, is harder, but I'm going to submit myself to your way. It's hard. It's difficult. And Paul goes, who will deliver me from this body of death? I, I think about that. Maybe you feel that way. You're like, I'm a slave to my every desire. Like any desire I have, I want to click. I want to explore. I want to find. I want to pursue. I want to swipe whatever direction it is. I don't even know. But I want to explore that. And I want to find, I want to find meaning in that. How do I stop? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul in Romans 7, just right after that, says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I love that because Paul is saying the same person who saves you from hell and sin and death is the same person who saves you from you. It's the same person who saves you from your body. And then Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To who? To those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To those who walk according to the Spirit, man, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. That the same power that rose Christ from the grave lives in you, Romans 8.11. Paul then enters into Romans 8 and says, the power lies in the Holy Spirit 
The power lies in the person of Jesus. And so here's what I want to leave you guys with, and everyone, everyone with, because let's be honest, men, this could just be a lustful heart. Our minds can wander. It can be just, you fantasize when some guy is kind to you, ladies, when they, they show you and meet your emotional needs and you start to fantasize. This could be same-sex attraction. This could just be a plethora of things. So what do we do? How do we battle this? Here's the first thought, and I just want us to really get this in. Um, the Bible offers this idea of a new heart and new practices, a new heart and new practices. What do I mean by that? Like, how do you get a new heart? Here's the idea. Our heart is crazy wicked, man. Like, it's crazy wicked. Even my five-year-old, I'm like, what'd you just say? I'm like, where'd you even hear that? Like, that's crazy wicked. Like, you know, my heart, my heart is crazy wicked. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus is like, you're all, you're all hopeless, right? And it's like, Josiah, don't, your church is not very encouraging. I know, okay, good, don't worry. But the hope of this message is, man, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Wicked. My heart is wicked. Out of the heart comes all these evil thoughts, covetousness, murder, slander, fornication. The heart just is, 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 is producing, constantly producing just evil, just toxic. And here's God's solution. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God promises this for a future day, and that's this day. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Three times in Ezekiel, God says this. I'm going to give you a new heart. Your heart's wicked? Well, guess what? I offer new hearts. I'm so th- what does that mean, this new heart? He goes, I'm going to give you a whole new you, new will, new desires, new longings, new passions, new meaning. I'm going to place your old heart, the things you thought you wanted, the things you thought you needed, the things that you thought that would meet every need of yours. I'm going to take out that heart and put a new heart within you. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to change your inner man dramatically to the point where you have a new heart. This is offered to us in the person of Jesus. You know, it's funny. There's a book called uh, Why You Need to Stop. It's like Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And I agree with this concept. Like as a little kid, it's like, have you asked Jesus in your heart? I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Like even still today, today like, what does that mean? Stop asking Jesus. Like, because we always said to kids, have you asked Jesus in your heart? What does that mean? We don't get it. But here's this concept. Paul in Ephesians 3 talks about this. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love this. I agree with that book, you know, stop asking Jesus in your heart. But I also think at the same time, Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Meaning, man, you put your faith in Jesus. Watch Jesus come in you. Watch Jesus take control of you. Watch Jesus change the inner man, the inner desires. Things I once longed for, things I'm no longer longing for. Jesus shows me how to starve my flesh till it slowly dies and to feed my spirit. Jesus says, I'll put new heart, new will, new desires within you. The Bible says your heart is wicked. Guess what though? God promises and offers a new heart. And listen, faith in Jesus, church, faith in Jesus. Jesus, renew my heart daily. Renew my heart. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, take up your cross daily, daily. God, let me die to my flesh, die to my way of thinking, die to my, my choices, die to me and be alive to you. I die daily. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I die daily. Paul in the book of Galatians said three different times, I crucified the flesh with its lusts and desires. I've crucified the flesh with its lusts and desires. But God, I can never get rid of these desires. Crucify it with its lusts and desires. Ask Jesus for that new heart, that new spirit. You know, there's this woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Great last name. Makes me want like pancakes or something. But anyways, I mentioned her before, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a brilliant woman. She's a brilliant woman. She was a professor at Syracuse University. 
She was a professor of women's studies. Um, she was in a lesbian relationship. She, as a prof she had tenure at, at Syracuse. She's a highly respected professor. And she writes about how she hated men. She hated the patriarchy. She hated Christians. She hated the Bible. She hated anything that was like that, right? And she said, until one day, she met a Christian. And him and his wife invited her and her spouse or her partner over to their house. And her life was radically transformed. Like, she was radically transformed. She said it took years, but eventually she started reading the Bible. Jesus took hold of her heart. Jesus changed her desires. It's eventually this place where she ended that relationship. And years later, she started getting attraction for men. And she got married to a man and now has a family. Now, that's not everyone's story. Not everyone's story is uh, their desires and attractions change from the same sex to the opposite sex. That's not everyone's story. That was her story. But she, writing about her story and her experience, talks about how this is a heart issue, and it's so much more than that. So here's what she says. Listen to this. Uh, this woman's professor from Syracuse University, she says this. The core issue is never sexual. It's the attitude toward God behind our sexuality. We want to establish what is right. We want to be God. We want to judge rather than be judged. We want to remake reality around our preference, preferences. It is not homosexuality that condemns. It is the sin behind that sin that condemns. Man, all of us want to be God of our own lives. All of us want to be lords of our own lives. I don't want someone to tell me what to do. Tell me what to do with my body, my life, my desires, my sexuality. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. And she goes, it's not that homosexuality is the issue. It's that we, it's that we want to be our own God is the issue. And eventually, so you have to repent and say, Jesus, you're Lord. You're God. I'm not the Lord of my life. I'm not the Lord of my body. My body's not my own. The Bible says you, you're, God bought your body. Your body was bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. This is not mine. It's not my body. It's not your body. You're stewarding that. God has given you that as a, a beautiful gift. Church, this is the, the hope I have for us is in this moment, we would say, Lord, I'm going to surrender my will, my sexuality, what I think is right over to you. That as James 4 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. My hope in this process is if you and I want to find healing, we want to be freed from that addiction, that lustful thought, that lustful life. If you want to get out of a certain lifestyle, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Jesus, I come before you and I, I surrender my will, my thoughts, my emotions, my desires over to you. Give me a new heart, new spirit. This is where we find that healing and meaning. Listen, church, I just want to encourage you guys, take on new practices. Like, please hear me in this. I always say the thing that's helped me overcome sexual sin the most in my life is simply knowing the word of God and putting it in my heart. Here's, let, me, let me explain that. Psalm 199 says this. It says, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word, O Lord. Listen to that. Um, not memorizing the word, but church, get the word deep in your heart. If, if you find that you're constantly struggling with lust, pornography, addiction, heterosexual sins, heterosexual, whatever, uh, homosexual sins, if you're struggling with these different things, I would say this, get God's word deeply ingrained into your heart. You know, I think one of the secrets even for me is just like driving around, listening to worship, listening to podcasts, like just constantly surround yourself with the word of God. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to your word. I would say surround yourself with the word of God. Let me also say this, church, if you find yourself struggling with different sexual sins or expressions or lusts or thoughts or all these different things, I would say get yourself in a healthy and consistent community. Like find healthy and consistent community. Yes, our groups take the month of December off, but in January, come back together. Like let's be in healthy and consistent community. Grab a core group pamphlet, little booklet, and get with one other person and walk through the core groups. Walk through confession of sin. Walk through praying for others. Just walk through reading scripture. Walk through this. 
You know, 2 Timothy 2, 22 says, uh, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of the pure heart. Listen, with those who call on the Lord out of the pure heart. Find, like men and women, listen, please listen. Surround yourself with other men and women who will love Jesus and pursue Jesus with you, who pursue these things with you. Be in that strong community. And, and not only that, but be dramatic about this. Like when it comes to sexual sin, Jesus had very strong words. He goes, man, if your eye causes you to sin, what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is Jesus saying we should be like blind and lame, like have nothing? Like He's saying, obviously the problem is still a heart issue. We could have a bunch of blind and maimed and lame people walking around, but your heart would still be sinning. But here's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 when he says, you know, cut off your hand or pluck out your eye. He's essentially saying, be dramatic about getting sin out of your life. Like take drastic measures. Whatever you need to do to cut the sin out of your life, do it. Because it's either you're going to cut it off or it's going to slowly creep in your life and kill you. He's basically saying, be dramatic about cutting sin out of your life. I think we as the church have to be like, take dramatic measures at times to cut sin out of our life. Guys, if, there, if there's an addiction in your life when it comes to this, and you find yourself three years, five years, 10 years, still going back to it. I mean, be dramatic about cutting sin out of your life. Have you tried fasting and prayer? Like Isaiah 58 says, how it loosens the bonds on you. You know, if you've ever fasted, let's be honest, I'm not the biggest, I don't know anyone who's like, I love fasting. I really don't know many people like that. Um, but fasting is incredibly difficult. But here's what fasting does. When I fast, maybe you've had this experience, your body throughout the day is yelling, feed me. Like, I don't know why, like, every, every time I'm fasting, this like, I have free food for you. I'm like, why is everything free today? But like, you're fasting, and then your body's yelling, feed me, feed me. And here's what you're doing when you're fasting. You're saying, no body, you don't control me, I control you. When you're fasting, your body's saying, I'm hungry, get food in me now. And you're saying, no flesh, you don't control me. I know you think you do, but I control you and you're slowly starving your flesh. Here's what that produces spiritually. When your flesh is crying out, feed me, click on this, indulge in this. You're saying through fasting, I've taught my flesh that it's not the boss. I've taught my flesh that it doesn't control me, but I control it. First Thessalonians 4, we read it, to know how to possess your own vessel, your own body. When you fast, it's teaching you a spiritual discipline to say no to your flesh and yes to your spirit. Fasting is showing you, starve the flesh. If you starve something, it dies. You starve an animal, it dies. You starve a plant, it dies. You starve something, it dies. And I'm going to feed my spirit and watch it live. And I say, church, if this, if this is a thing for you, this, this sexual expression, whether through lusting, pornography, same-sex sins, whatever it might be, I'd say this, fight it by getting the word deep in your heart, be in healthy community, try fasting and prayer, be, and do this, or, and repeat, and just do this over and over in life, in community. And I'd say, just watch the Lord bring healing and deliverance because God wants and is willing to give you a new heart and new desires. God wants to. He wants to see you free. Listen, church, I know that we serve a God who wants to see victory in this area. I would love to see a church that is just like Revelation talks about, that Corinthians talks about, pure and chaste, set apart completely for the Lord. This is something God wants to do in us and through us. And so here's, here's why I'm, I'm sharing this. Um, if you've ever felt this way, like, man, Josiah, I've done some terrible things. I've done things to others or things have happened to me. I don't know how I can move on. I don't know if God could ever love me or forgive me based off the things I've done or this relationship. Is it ruined or is it over? How do we do this? Here, here's what I do know. I do know that Paul would go on to say, neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor principalities or powers, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ that is in God. Nothing can separate you. 
that would say, no, there's something about remind yourself of the truth and the freedom you have in Christ and say, Jesus, you've died and forgiven me so that I can experience victory in this area. God wants you to be victorious in this area of your life more than you do. And so listen, God will join you and you will join God in this work of just, God, give me truly just this, this sexual understanding of, of doing it your way, of just applying my will to your will, saying, I'm going to surrender it. I'm going to give it up. I, guys, I would love to see victory in this area. If there's, if there's sexual sin in your life, I want to say today's the day to confess it and repent of it. If lust and pornography has become an addiction, we have a recovery group, and I would say, please join that. It's more than just, than just for drugs and alcohol. If this is one of those things where you go, this is owning me, wrecking me, wrecking my marriage, wrecking my friendships, I would say there's freedom in Christ. It's going to take work. It's going to be painful, but we're willing to walk through it with you. And you're not alone in this. And listen, what God means for good, the enemy means for evil and harm, and God wants to see healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy lives. No one plans on leaving their spouse. No one plans on hurting their kids that way. No one plans on that. But with sexual sin over time, it just creeps in and just destroys lives. And we want to say no more, no more. Not in the church, no more. I know it will happen. There is grace, there's redemption, there's forgiveness, but we're going to fight for healthy marriages. We're going to fight for healthy purity in our sex life. We're going to fight for this. We're going to fight to say, Lord, your, your way, not my way. Amen? I would love to see a church be an example to the world and say, listen, look at our marriages. There's healthy sex life, great sex life in marriage. There's good families. It's like the church can be broken people, and I get that. Mess up, I get that. But I would love to see, again, this idea of like, let us be a light to the world. Let us be a contrast from the way the world's doing sexuality with the way we're doing it. And go, why is there so many more joy and peace and patience and hope and meaning and value in your life and your families and your sex life? Because you go, oh, we're doing it the way God designed, and it is good, and it is well. Amen? Listen, I want to do this. We're going to pray and worship and just seek the Lord for a bit. If you want to come up and get prayer, we're going to have some prayer leaders here. If you want to confess sin, if you want to just say, pray for me, this is an addiction or a stronghold. If you want to say, hey, I'm actually looking for other mentors and other couples to mentor me, would you consider that? If you're a couple looking for an older couple, come. We want to pray with you. We want to introduce you to other people. We want to build this community that we're talking about, and we want to do this the way God has designed. Amen? We just pray and just invite the Lord to speak and to heal and to move. Let's just do that right now. Father, we thank you. And Lord, um, in many ways, Jesus, we're just at a loss for words because there's so much the world says about this. But Jesus, we just want to surrender to you. Lord, I just ask that you would bring healing in individuals and families. God, I, I ask that you would set us free. Those who might be in bondage or addiction or what, just, they're just burdened or overwhelmed by different sexual sins or expressions or pornography. Jesus, I ask that you would just set them free today. God, I just ask that we would practice these things. We'd put your word in our hearts. We'd be in healthy community, that we'd fast, that we would pray, that we'd seek you together. Uh, Jesus, I ask for healthy marriages right now. God, I ask if there's any marriage in this room that's just frustrated, struggling, bitter, resentful. Jesus, I ask for this, this whole wholeness, this one flesh that you described, that they should be joined to each other in intimacy and in unity. God, I ask that you restore families. God, I ask that for us who've, who've done things in the past that we're ashamed of, Jesus, remind us that you make all things new. Jesus, remind us that you put a white garment on us, that we, not, we should not be defined by our past sins or our past fail, failures, but you've made all things new. Jesus, I ask that you'd speak that over us. I ask that you'd work that into deep, deep into our hearts. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for this time. We just want to worship you and invite you in this place, Jesus, in your name. Amen.